afternoon, everyone. I'd just like to extend a warm welcome to the final of the TSU's um, 2015 public seminar series on the scale of politics of transport. I'm Jenny Middleton. I'm a senior research fellow here at the TSU, and I'll be acting as chair for today's proceedings. Now, it gives me great pleasure to introduce our two speakers, who will be both talking for around half an hour, and then we'll open things up into sort of a broader discussion. Now, first we have Dr. Justin Spinney, who's from the School of Planning and Geography at Cardiff University. Now, Justin's a human geographer who's broadly interested in the intersections between mobility, embodiment, environmental sustainability and technology. And his research cuts across several themes, which include the governance of mobility, so that fits very well with some of the things we've been talking about this term, um, affect, emotions, sensory geographies, visual cultures, design technology and mobile methods. Now, Justin's done extensive research on cycling through his um, sort of academic career and is currently involved in an EPSRC project called Cycle Boom with um, colleagues at Oxford Brooks, Reading, Bristol, Bristol yeah. sorry, UE at yeah. Bristol, yeah. and is that, is that everyone? Yeah, um, and actually one of the case study areas is, is Oxford, um, which is looking at older people and their experiences of cycling. But today he's going to be focusing on some other work on cyclist and HGV driver interactions. Um, our second speaker is Martin Cassini, who's a campaigner and producer and founder of Equality Street, which is a campaign for traffic system reform, which is all about giving equal rights to all road users. Now, Martin is a graduate from Wadham College here in Oxford, and since then has worked on a range of sort of TV productions, and since 2001, and I quote, he has seen the light about traffic lights and campaigned for traffic system reform and regularly pitches his ideas to TV, press and radio. So I'd like to hand over to Justin. Thank you. Thank you, Jenny. Um, so thank you to Jenny. Thank you uh, to Tim in particular for inviting me here to talk today. Um, thank you to Jenny for acting as discussant today. Thank you for, to you all for being here. Um, so the talk I'm going to give today bears some similarity, certainly to Martin's. Um, in that one of the key things I'm going to focus on is issues of design and how they express equality, or not, as the case may be, perhaps. Um, I guess the most obvious uh, sort of difference between what uh, I and Martin are going to say is that he's, he's, I believe, more focused on the built environment, traffic signals, these aspects um, in terms of design, whereas I'm more focused on the actual objects of design, and today in particular the design of the, the HGV, the heavy goods vehicle. Um, so where does this talk come from? Uh, it comes from work that I've been trying to do for at least a couple of years. It started as a, as a stakeholder workshop in May of 2012, which was where we invited lots of representatives from the, the Freight Transport Association, the Met Police, the Minerals Haulage Association, the London Cycling Campaign, lots and lots of stakeholders together in a room to look at this issue um, around HGVs and cyclists and why they don't get on particularly well out on the roads. Um, following that up, um, I did a little bit of pilot research with a colleague, Kim Coleman, who's now at Goldsmiths. Um, and we, uh, we did lots of ethnographies of uh, safety events for HGVs and we did some interviews with some of the operators and some of the drivers. Um, and then it's all gone a little quiet, uh, unfortunately. But so what, what, I'm, what I'm presenting today is really trying to, to look at some of that empirical work that we did, but also um, 
focusing on some kind of desk-based research, looking at some of the policy work that's been going on. Um, so a sort of key aim today is, is to look at how a particular politics plays out. And when I say politics, I'm really talking about this relationship between different citizens um, and how some gain uh, some kind of dominance over others, but also how particular citizens become constructed out on the roads through those kind of relationships as well. People as more or less citizen, as it were. So what I'm going to focus on today to, um, are two key things. So the first is the design of the HGV with a particular focus on some of the technologies that are all the rage at the moment in terms of being retrofitted to, to that. So particular um, sensors and sort of camera technologies which, which are kind of seen as curing some of the, the issues that we have with the HGV at the moment. Um, and then the second is looking at the more fundamental sort of redesign of what I lovingly call the death brick, um, this, this current you know, HGV design which is just getting taller and taller, um, it would appear, and blunter and blunter as well. So look at um, the passage of some of that legislation through the EU and some of the politics at play there as well. So, as I know that Jenny's going to be keeping me strictly to time... Okay, so, um, as I'm sure you're all aware, um, and I should say, my, my focus is particularly on London. Um, I'm not particularly up on cycling in Oxford, I have to say, from the outset. My, my research has mainly been focused on London. So, as we're all hopefully aware, cycling in London has seen a, a rapid increase over the last 15 or so years. So, 2011 census data showed a 144% increase in cycling over a 10-year period, from 2001 to 2011. Um, now, that only counts trips on 5% of the core network, but there's now something like 131,000 cycle trips per day on that core, um, uh, that core uh, Transport for London road network. Um, now, at the moment, there's moves afoot to try and increase that by 400%, um, up to a modal share, I think it's about 5%. Um, now, if we talk to some theorists, apparently safety in numbers of cyclists, that should be making cycling safer. At the moment I'm not sure if that's the case in London as we've got um, a few stats here. So 2013 wasn't actually in many ways a worse year for cyclists in London than 2012. We had the same number of 14 cyclist deaths. Um, 2014 hasn't been any better. Data's not complete from this. Uh, we haven't got the last quarter yet. But I've managed to estimate, give or take, the last quarter is always worse, um, that we would be looking at an increase of killed and seriously injured um, of roughly an extra five or 600 cyclists, but um, deaths remaining the same. And in 2015, five cyclists dead in January alone uh, in London. Now, the causes of these killed and seriously injured are, are numerous, but what's become most evident, I think, um, is the disproportionate role that HGVs play in, the, in these deaths and serious injuries. Um, so, of those 14 deaths in 2013, nine involved a heavy goods vehicle. Um, and so lorries account for about 4% of London traffic, but between 2008 and 2012, they're involved in over 50% of the deaths of cyclists in the capital. So there's 
There's something going on there, I think. Um, and they are overrepresented in accidents in general, even with cars. They make up about 11% of motorway traffic, yet are involved in about 50% of incidents. So it's not just cyclists and pedestrians, perhaps, we're talking about. Now, <coughs> there was a particularly bad two weeks at the end of 2013, um, in which six cyclists died in London in a two-week period, all involving heavy goods vehicles. And that, that pressured Transport for London. They've been taking the issue quite seriously, hats off to them, but it really pressured them to sort of step up their game. Um, and so they started to take it even more seriously. So we saw a number of things happen, and I've split this into three main things. So the first of these was um, a variety of announcements by Transport for London, Department for Transport, the Mayor, etc., um, in, in an attempt to try and discipline the HGV driver in particular. So there's already substantial training and vetting procedures for HGV drivers, um, <clears throat> but now... Um, they were being asked to get on bikes and have specific cyclist awareness training. Um, and as part of its Freight Operators Recognition Scheme, or FORS, Transport for London is making this mandatory. So if you want to, um, if you want to contract on something like Crossrail, um, your fleet, if you're an operator, has to be a member of FORS, which, so your drivers will have to have done cyclist awareness training. Um, now, one of the issues with that is it just it still leaves an awful amount of heavy goods vehicle drivers, you know, kind of untrained. Because if you're not interested in contracting for Crossrail, it doesn't matter, you don't have to do it. So, there are issues there, but it is a step in the right direction. Um, a second prominent theme in media reports certainly has been a preponderance of kind of blame falling on the abstract, ab abstract systems of road and junction design. Um, a number of news reports certainly positioned um, the road layouts um, and traffic signals as a weak link in not allowing HGVs and cyclists to uh, get along better. Um, I think that's interesting because it does suggest a policy recognition, if not a legal one, that, that objects and environments do play a significant role in scripting our actions. It isn't just drivers, it isn't just cyclists, as it were. Now, one of the results of this has been uh, a prioritisation a prioritization of cycling um, for Transport for London. So in their recent roads modernisation plan, which was announced end of 2014, they announced about £4 billion worth of spending. Not much, really. Um, nearly a billion of that was actually earmarked for cycling over 10 years. And it was really to do with these things. So the redesign of 33 junctions to make them more cyclist-friendly, um, new superhighways and improvements to existing ones, and then the modernisation of traffic signals, uh, whatever that might actually mean. Um, now, I think, I think this is important. I think it's very important. But certainly an argument I would make here that is that an emphasis on built environment serves to draw attention away from the fundamentally disvisual design of the HGV as an object. And so this leads us to the third prominent theme and the one that this paper really focusing on, the HGV itself and its design. So 
to start off, I would say I, I do believe the HGV is in some ways, you know, it's it's well, it's a not a great, it's a very good technological accomplishment. It's a vehicle that requires one person to operate, whether that's safely or not, um, and it can move up to 40 tonnes uh, in one load. It replaces an awful lot of work, okay? It does do a task, and certainly the, the world that we live in would look very different if we didn't have it. Um, but it takes many different shapes and sizes for a, a variety of reasons. So, firstly, I think it's shaped by the places that it visits. It's shaped by muddy building sites um, with tight spaces or large ports with gantries to determine its height, its wheelbase, whether it articulates, uh, and the presence of safety features such as underarm bars, which are notice noticeably absent on this one. It's also shaped by the task it's designed to carry out. So shifting loose loads or odd loads, things that must be tipped or grabbed, moving standardised loads like containers and pallets. Um, and so there's a recognition, I think, that it, it sits as part of a much wider socio-technical system. Um, very difficult to change one part of it without knock-on consequences for other parts of it, particularly in terms of palletisation and containerization. It's also shaped by regulations as well. So in the EU, legislation stipulates um, a maximum overall length for HGVs that leaves 2.35 metres for the cab. Um, so what we've seen um, is the cab getting higher and higher. It, if we looked at the US, they don't regulate the overall length, they regulate the trailer, which enables the cab to still be longer, engine out in front, whereas the engine underneath, the cab's getting higher and higher. Uh, it's also an object shaped by its, the experiences of transit and the demands of driving it. So this shapes in particular its internal dimensions. Um, for example, an HGV such as this, designed for long distance haulage, the internal space of the HGV cab actually reflects driver ergonomics more than anything else, through the, the presence of suspended seats and beds and televisions. It's, it's a living quarters as much as it's something to drive. But it's also, so, so there's a number of reasons why, you know, the death brick is the way that it is. Um, but it's also readily apparent that many aspects of HGV design reflect an, an understanding of their origins and destinations. So the HEV design complements ports, it complements building sites and supermarket loading bays, but its presence on urban streets and even highways is very much more antagonistic. Um, and so we could say it's here that we see Ulrich Beck's risk thesis come back to haunt us, the efficiencies of modernity coming back on us as bodily risks in the form of things like HEVs. So as, very, as well as being very good at moving large loads, um, we can see in its over-representation in fatalities, it's also very good at causing death and serious injury, particularly to vulnerable road users, such as cyclists and pedestrians. So why is that? Well, apart from the fact that its mass and its shape mean that when unarmoured bodies come into contact with it, they generally come off very badly, the fundamental problem is that it's very hard to see out of. Um, 
And when, as a driver, your primary sense of what is around you is visual, that is a real issue. And that problem is, is amply highlighted by um, some work done, some modelling work done by a team at Loughborough, um, headed up by Sharon Cook and Steve Summerskill. Um, now they used detailed um, computer simulations and they mapped the visibility, uh, both direct and using mirrors um, from different cabs uh, for different drivers. So this is just one image from that and it shows the directly visible uh, area out of the offside window of a class N3 HEV, that being anything over 12 tonnes. Um, now what these modelled images try to convey is this lack of direct vision from the vantage point of the driver. So constrained by the height, um, large pillars, a solid rear panel um, and a firm seat and seat belt, much of the area immediately surrounding the truck is not actually visible to the driver. Um, so despite this very lofty vantage point, this is very far from all seeing. In fact, the sort of direct um, the amount of direct vision on an N3 HGV is currently so limited they have five mirrors fitted as standard um, and uh, there's now a sixth mirror as well which is now mandatory. So we've got another example but even with mirrors there are still enormous blind spots so this image is simply showing that you can line four cyclists up um, in the near side and even with the mirrors you can't see them. They are invisible effectively. Now there are caveats to this, this is modelling work but still um, having read the report I think it's very well uh, very well done modelling work. Um, but it shows that there is possibly an image <coughs> and we also need to take into account the distorted nature of many of the images we get in things like mirrors. As, as uh, Steve Summerskill, one of the authors of the report, said, if you factor in um, the fact that what you might actually see in a mirror as a driver is a grey blob, a fleeting grey blob, against a grey background on a grey day, what chance have you actually got of seeing it, even if it shows up in your mirror? Um, Now, as a result of this inability of mirrors to solve some of these, these issues, a recent trend has been to retrofit a variety of camera or sensor systems to the uh, HGV. Um, I'll skip out of this and just show that video if I can. Okay, so this just gives an idea what this is. It's three camera feeds, composited, and would be fed into... Uh, the cab for the driver to see. So we've got one down the near side, one looking down um, uh, the, again, the offside, yeah, and then a rear facing camera as well. And then we've got the cyclists. We're back. Amazing. Right. Um, <laughs> okay, so the, 
I think that raises a further issue, really, in relation to the conjunction of mirrors and camera technologies, and particularly when used in combination, this idea of sensory overload for the driver. The fact the driver will have five or six mirrors to scan before deciding on a course of action is cited as a problem by many drivers. And according to tests carried out by uh, Cook and Summerskill, it takes roughly five and a half seconds for an HGV driver to scan uh, four mirrors. That's just the mirrors. That's without having to look at another display or a possible six mirror, and that's without looking directly as well. So you can imagine that a lot changes in five and a half seconds in a busy urban environment. And so in our chats with drivers, they, they, pointed, they, they were quite quick to point out some of the negative effects of this kind of visual overload. Um, so on a site visit to one of the leading construction logistics firms, we were told that because of the use of mirrors and cameras, um, it gets to the point where the last place you're looking is out the front. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a concern for me. Um, so and in relation to camera technologies specifically, drivers likened this experience to, as it says here, driving the Starship Enterprise through London. So um, Carl explains that computer screens are distracting because they contain too much information for drivers to process this risk turning the cap into a Starship Enterprise. And I think it's a revealing metaphor because it paints a picture of a, vehicle, of a vehicle which is not only very large, but in part thanks to this safety equipment, it's become so complex that the task of controlling it is beyond one individual to do safely. So the key issue here, I think, um, is this process of technomorphism that I want to kind of highlight, which is really where these safety technologies are seen to make the vehicle infallible, that they do afford direct vision. And because of that, that is then passed on to the driver. So it's that sense of saying to the driver, well, you can, of course you can see everything now. So if something bad happens, it's your fault. Okay. So it is passing the infallibility of the technology, perceived infallibility of the technology, onto the driver. Um, and that comes across in these quotes here from operators, I think. Um, they're, saying, you know, they're literally saying the more responsibility we're putting on the driver, um, driver, you've got to do all this. And then most things have been done for a reason. It's about managing. So it means to ensure the drivers do what they're meant to do. Uh, driver might think that's not positive, but from our viewpoint, it's a positive thing. We want to adhere to all the rules and regs that are applicable. Now, for me, a key concern there is the way that a politics kind of plays out, where the driver, rather than the HGV, is constructed as kind of, you know, the very responsible one, and in most cases, the irresponsible one. Um, in all the talks we've had with drivers, um, I've yet to see any that, that will willfully want to harm someone. Um, not saying they're not out there, um, but we certainly haven't come across any in our research. But it's this idea that the failings of the HGV are accepted in a way that those of the driver are not. Now, one, one issue we've, we've also got here is producing a particular geography of safety, particularly with things like the Freight Operators Recognition Scheme, um, and some of this technology becoming mandatory, um, as, a, as a vulnerable road user, you're starting to get into the situation where you may be, you know, if some of this technology does work, and I'm not saying it's useless, um, 
is that depending on where you are, you may be safer than other people, uh, than other vulnerable road users. Um, so, and as Chris Selling from the Freight Transport Association has also said, it creates real logistics problems. Um, so if London can implement such a programme, there's nothing to stop other cities across Britain following suit, each with different and potentially conflicting requirements. The idea that this starts to become a choice and becomes something quite varied means that we are exposing some people to more risk than others. How long have I got, Jenny? Ten minutes. Ten minutes, OK. That should, that should do. OK. So if these so-called safety technologies are not necessarily making things uh, any safer all the time, the question becomes why is attention not focused on a more fundamental redesign? Um, and actually it has. So there has been some research, surprisingly little, uh, on what small changes in things like cab length could mean for safety and emissions. So one of the key reports, if not the key report that seems to be cited, um, was from a small NGO, Transport and Environment. Um, and this studied various changes in cab length to look at what the implications might be. So it looked at extending the cab by 40 centimetres up to 120 centimetres. Its conclusion was, was that the best solution for future regulation would be to allow for an overall length increase of 80 centimetres. Um, and so, what it argued Excuse was that. Sorry, sorry, I just, I just called, sorry to interrupt. Mm -hmm. You're talking about the cabin only, expanding the size of the cabin. Well, what they're saying is that is that they will allow overall length to get bigger, but specifically, um, this will be focused on the cab. Right. So this idea that the trailer will remain that will remain the same, the same, but we can now extend the cab and try and alleviate some of these direct visibility issues. Um, so what they're really saying is that if we can lengthen the front of the cab, we can lower the height. The engine can come out the front a bit more, the height can be lowered, direct visibility gets better. Um, and the other key advantage would be that it can actually have a crumple zone. At the moment, if you're hit by an HGV, you're straight into the engine. Um, there's, it's pretty unforgiving, um, to say the least. Um, and so the idea that you can have a crumple zone. So you can see out the thing better, and if something does happen, um, then, you know, hopefully it won't be as bad. And the, the research concluded that in about 50% of incidents, it would, um, it would avert a fatality. So in the EU as a whole, that would be about 3,500 um, you know, per year out of 7,000. In terms of saving of lives, we'd be looking at something like 300 per year, was what the report suggested. So certainly not insignificant. Um, another um, thing that the report highlighted as well was that this would make the, the truck much more aerodynamic, about 12% saving in fuel efficiency. So where are these... Sorry. Also, I noticed in that image... The windscreen's much bigger in the advanced concept, isn't it? It comes much lower, the windscreen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a number of number of things. And also, you'll notice it's much more rounded. It's much yeah. more rounded yeah. front as well. So there's an idea that people won't just, you know, hit it straight on. That they will be rolled around it. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
and, and a number of manufacturers have looked at concept vehicles as well in this, in this vein. Um, so where are these changes? So um, as pressure on, on this issue has grown, combined with the desire to reduce emissions, there's been ongoing EU review on the design of HGVs to increase driver's visibility. Um, so the overall length and weight of the HGV is currently controlled by this EU directive. Um, and it places limits on the size and weight of the vehicles. The EU uh, be began consulting on this back in 2011. Consultation closed in 2012. Negotiations were completed at the tail end of 2014. Um, and TFL in particular has been an important actor in its lobbying efforts to try and speed this up as well and make these improvements. So what we see in these changes to the EU directive are these two key things. So making vulnerable road users more visible to the driver in particular by reducing the blind spot under the front windscreen and two, reducing the damage in the event of a collision. So idea that we now have a crumple zone. However, as the new directive goes on to state, um, and I've highlighted uh, the bit which I think is particularly important, um, so we've got the, the, you know, the main derogations um, that must meet certain requirements, one of which is not to increase the low capacity of vehicles. The Commission will, with the assistance of the committee, specify these requirements at a later date. Okay. And I will come back to that. Now, there's been opposition to these changes. That's come mainly from vehicle manufacturers, uh, particularly Volvo um, via Sweden and Renault, uh, who, are, um, who are homed in France, and through the uh, Association of European Vehicle Manufacturers. Now, their response to the proposed changes was to suggest that the vehicle design did not actually need fundamental change. Um, and they've said, regarding improvements to forward side and rear vision, for instance, the use of new technologies such as cameras and proximity detectors will provide a far quicker, more flexible, more efficient way to improve the safety of pedestrians and cyclists than redesigned cabs. So there's at least two issues that I'd like to highlight there. The first is that the efficacy of these retrofit technologies um, is far from proven. We've only done a little bit of pilot research there. We're hoping to do a much bigger piece of research to look at some of those issues around sensory overload and see if these really are the best ways. But I think the second is that we can kind of interpret this as an attempt by manufacturers to pass responsibility onto other actors again. If a manufacturer changes the design of their vehicle, if they retrofit the technology, they will be seen as responsible if it doesn't work. Whereas at the moment, if they say to an operator, if they sell the truck and the operator has to fit it, it is the operator's problem. And the operator fits it and says, well, the truck's perfect now. It's now the driver's problem. So this is attribution of responsibility all coming back down to the driver. Now, in addition to that opposition, uh, the Association of European Vehicle Manufacturers also attempted to suggest that they couldn't actually do this in terms of product life cycle. So in the product life cycle, for these vehicles is 15 to 20 years and that the EU had, had a duty to um, give them more of a chance in terms of lead times, planning certainty, etc. And so if the um, AEVM got their way, these new designs um, would be banned until at least 2023. So they wouldn't 
enter the market till probably 2028. Luckily for us, the EU wasn't having it. Um, the Commission considers that it would be contrary to the interests of the Union citizens to wait for a number of years before the manufacturers introduced the new designs, which were to a large extent ready for deployment. And certainly there is work ongoing, albeit on quite a piecemeal basis, um, on what they might look like. So under this, this, this agreement now, the e, um, EU will propose the, propose the new safety rules in 2016 and the regulation will be finalised in 2019. Trucks will be on the roads 2022 at the earliest. Um, so a little way away, but certainly not as bad as 2028. What I think is key here is what's yet to be seen is the extent to which regulators and manufacturers will take this opportunity to convert that extra length into increased visibility. Okay? So at the moment, that part of it, there's a, there's a stipulation to increase length, but at the moment, it's completely open to negotiation via a committee as to what the actual legal stipulation would be and the type of approval is going to be for the vehicle. I think that's quite important. Okay, so to wrap up... Um, so we don't only need to design streets that express equality. We need to design objects that express equality, in this case, vehicles. And so this, this works in well, at least two ways, possibly three. Most obviously, I think we need vehicles that allow equity on the roads. Now, currently, we absolutely don't have that. In terms of size and speed, if we look at the HGV, its capacity to harm others outstrips um, other vehicles, particularly in relation to vulnerable road users. There is an equity there. But we can at least go some way to, mitting, to, to sort of mitigating that if we can make it an object you can at least see out of. Okay? Um, this doesn't achieve equality because if, if these two things come together, one's still going to come off worse, but we can at least reduce the chance of them coming together. The second point is really this idea that we need vehicle design that distributes responsibility more equitably. Um, so at present, I, I've actually got quite a lot of sympathy with drivers, which for a cyclist is possibly a rare thing, um, because they're being asked to use lethal weapons in everyday contexts and increasingly told that if it goes wrong, it's them at fault, because the vehicle, with all its retrofitted mirrors and sensors, can no longer be to blame. So the operator won't be to blame, neither will the manufacturer. Um, and this is because when, when incidents occur, technology and abstract systems become a kind of conduit for distributing responsibility, but only for certain expert actors in the system. So these shifts in the attribution of responsibility have the potential to construct the driver as negligent, irresponsible and certainly less than citizen if accidents, incidents still occur. So I think a key point is where are the missing masses if we look to someone like Bruno Latour? Um, where are these experts behind the design, the regulation and the operation of the HGV and its systems? And I think to come to this third point, we need a regulator in legal framework that facilitates this distribution of responsibility, that doesn't keep passing it down to the driver, that acknowledges that there are many different actors involved in bringing um, this object onto the roads and that they 
they have to take some, some share of the responsibility for what it uh, can and can't do. Um, I think I'll leave it there. Um, so, thank you.